I'm going to do a presentation, show a couple of videos, and lead a discussion. But the first, what I want to do is to tell you a little bit about the Truth and Democracy Coalition, and then about some of our upcoming events. So the Truth and Democracy Coalition was formed to build a pro-democracy movement in America. We educate the public about disinformation, teach people to be critical of the propaganda they consume, provide critical analysis of current events and social issues. We produce media and educational materials, hold seminars and meetings, work with other organizations, and organize events and activities geared towards building a pro-democracy movement in America. The coalition seeks to build communities of people of different faiths and ideologies to defend and promote democracy locally, nationally, and globally. On July 2nd at 2 p.m. Pacific time, we will have our second nonpartisan Red Pills men's group. And so what we do at that group is we talk about women, relationships, politics, and life. And at our second meeting, we're going to begin our book study of the book, The, the Rational Male by Rolo Tomasi. And we will begin with the first section of the book, The Basics. So to register, go to tinyurl.com slash redpillmen. And then on July 16, 2023 here at 2 p.m., we will have the first of a series of planning committee meetings for our January 6th Remembrance event. We are planning our annual event to remember the attempted coup and insurrection against the United States Congress. It's important to remember what happened and not let the horrendous actions of then-President Donald Trump and his extremist followers work to overthrow our government and install Donald Trump as dictator for life. In order to resist authoritarianism in America, we, we have to keep the events of January 6, 2021 at the forefront of people's minds as we head into the 2024 elections with Donald Trump still the front runner for the Republican nomination. So we're going to be organizing an event, an event in Whittier, and we will help others organize events in their hometowns. So join us on July 16th at 2 p.m. by registering at tinyurl.com slash Jan 6, 2024. And then finally, be sure to check out our YouTube page at youtube.com slash at truth and democracy coalition and be sure to like share and subscribe so i'm going to lead a discussion about what's wrong with men and what to do about it as a survivor of severe sexual abuse i'm going to tell my story address the problems facing men today and talk about what we need to do to help men so in this type of discussion, it's difficult to draw a line on what one should and shouldn't say. And a number of the issues are difficult to talk about. I don't want to name names or identify people, and I'm not, certainly not telling you everything. I'm only going to talk about things that are relevant to our discussion about men's loneliness and despair.
I will try to find the right balance. And I beg your patience with me and with one another as we grapple with this difficult subject. Now, the reason, now the reason I believe the abuse began very early in my life was because one night, um, my first sleepover, I began doing something to the boy. I was emulating, I think, what had been done to me, and I, I had really no sexual feelings about it at all. And I, I don't really remember what came of it, but I know that my parents concocted a pseudonym for the little boy because every time he saw us, he had a terrible look on, her, on his face. At about four or five years old, a 16-year-old girl took me into the bedroom and flashed me. I, I, I didn't have any sexual feelings. I remember thinking, and maybe even saying, what do you want me to do, drink milk? It was like a strip club and a bachelorette party when she flashed me, went, went down on me, and even sat on me. To this day, I don't like strip clubs or bachelor parties, and I'm particularly opposed to what goes on at bachelorette parties. I don't like burlesque shows or belly dancing. Places like Mardi Gras and boat parties and spring breaks where women expose themselves trigger painful feelings from the abuse. I, I once broke up with a woman because she went to a bachelorette party and tried to make me go to a bachelor party even after I told her I didn't want to, and that it would end our relationship, not because I forbid it, but because I simply couldn't be with her afterwards. And I would do that again, should the same thing happen. Obviously, this has caused me a great deal of difficulty, but there's more. So the same, this same type of abuse went on seasonally until I hit puberty, puberty and it introduced me to sexual behavior as a young child. As a result, I ended up seeking out sexual activity. I kissed a girl in second grade and made her cry. I had a relationship with a friend starting in the fourth grade that lasted into our teenage years and early adulthood. Not only did I seek out relationships with my peers, I sought out sexual activities with babysitters and other, other adults, both female and male. When I was around 11 or 12, I ran into one of those babysitters walking down the street with another man. There was this cave in the hillside where we as kids would go and play. And so we, we went into that cave and that's where that other man raped me, basically. So he, he wanted to kill me and bury me in that cave, but the babysitter said no. And, and that babysitter came back later on as part of some 12-strip program to apologize to try and make amends and the others that were there wanted to kill him but I thanked him for saving my life that day now I was six feet tall by the sixth grade I I soon attracted the interest of another woman I and the others and others were staying with her her husband and her children when it came to the end of the evening, she placed the other boys in another room and gave me the room with the waterbed in it. 
Now, back in the 70s, waterbeds were all the rage. I mean, particularly after the sexual revolution. They fell out of favor, however, because they tended to leak. You know, in fact, I remember the bed sprung a bad leak. And I watched her fix that leak like a pro, effectively, efficiently. I was impressed. She had obviously done this before. And I recognized how unsexy she looked fixing the leak in the nude. Now, I didn't know why she was giving me the room with the waterbed. I assumed that there wasn't enough room where the others were sleeping. And of course, but of course, later in the, in the evening, she came in and seduced me. Now, this is where I want to talk about what grooming is. It's not like a cat grooms itself or how I groom my beard. Grooming, when it comes to sexual abuse, is the seduction of a child. It, it's, it's simple. It's that simple. Now, she kept me up most of the night. And in the morning, I had to engage in activities with the other kids and her husband. The next day, I was sleepy. By the third, I was so tired, I simply fell asleep as she attempted to seduce me. I was, she was pissed. I couldn't keep my eyes open. I couldn't perform. I couldn't continue to be out all night and have sex all day. I'd be out all day and have sex all night and be able to function. So she came up with a solution. I needed to be excused from the daytime activities because I was tired and needed to sleep. I didn't know if it took one or two days in a row for her husband out entertaining the children to start thinking, why is he tired? Why does he need to get more sleep? He must have then realized what was happening, turned the car around and sped home in the afternoon to catch his wife hopping on me on the waterbed. Later that evening, he was angry. He, he was a burly man, he was a sportsman. He started to ask me why I did what I did and if I knew it was wrong. And I got scared and I started to cry. I was afraid he was going to beat me up. When he saw that, he threw himself to me, wrapped his arms around me and hugged me. You know, I didn't make the decision, I told him. He asked, sort of using gestures and words, why I had had an erection. She does that. I don't know. I was confused. They divorced not long after that. Now, many young girls and boys who have been groomed and abused are also confused. Sexual abuse is confusing. We have conflicted feelings. On the one hand, it's pleasurable and it's attention. On the other hand, it's an abuse of power. I can't think you know, sexual abuse has historically been a highly underreported crime. And I can't think of a more underreported sex crime than a woman grooming and abusing a teenage boy. So do not think, parents, for one moment that there isn't some woman out there who wants to turn your teenage son into her playboy, play toy. Don't think of that that's not the case for one moment. You talk to your daughters about sexual abuse, talk to your sons too. So I'm going to jump ahead to high school now. 
I was six feet, two inches tall. I was either 16 or 17 years old when I got called into the counselor's office late in the day. I didn't know why I had got called to the counselor's office so late, but I dutifully went. Um, I sat and waited and waited and waiting, waited. What was taking so long, I thought. I asked the lady working at a desk sort of in the middle there. Um, I don't remember what she said, but I do remember that she didn't give me any real answer. The counselor asked her to turn off the lights when she left. At the end of the day, the woman turned off the lights, picked up her things and began to leave. She walked towards me into the waiting room and toward the door. She looked at me as she was walking towards me, she looked at me knowingly. You know, maybe she felt bad, maybe she didn't. You know, maybe she thought that if I was her son, she wouldn't want the counselor to have sex with me. Maybe she didn't feel she could report it. Maybe she didn't want to. Why did she turn off the lights while I'm still there, I thought. At some point thereafter, the counselor called me in somehow, and I, or I went looking. We had a 69 on the floor of her office. She made me lick her, her ass that day. And I remember thinking, that wasn't that bad. I think it happened maybe a couple of additional times, but I knew how to get rid of her. I went up and put my arm around her in the quad during recess. While I had sexual feelings, you know, in the back of my mind, I knew she would have to back away if I started to behave like that in public. So she later told me not to do that. Now, after I graduated, I went to community college. I became a lifeguard and swimming instructor. I was around 18, 19 years old. One of the mothers of one of the children I was teaching took an interest in me. She was at least in her 30s. I was a barely legal teen. We had an affair. One day, she was angry with her husband. And she was angry because he gave her a dildo for her birthday or some holiday or something. And I didn't know what to make of that gift. All I knew was that he had provided her with this great house with a swimming pool. He was a business owner. When I think back on it now, he was probably saying, use this. Stop cheating on me. He probably didn't know how young the men were she was cheating on him with. Now I knew how to get rid of her too. I started to tell her I loved her. I really didn't, but I knew that she could not have that. And she, of course, immediately dropped me. Now, this story would not be complete without a story of redemption. I had a conversion experience in a women's studies class at the University of Southern California. And I've told this story before, and you can see the show. It God called a writer, Paul's mystical conversion experience on my podcast. And I put a link to that already in the chat when I put those other links in there. So you can access that for that story. But the experience of the the spiritual experience had a profound effect on me. I became a founding member of the Students Alliance for Non-Sexist Society, 
I founded a pro-feminist anti-pornography group called People Against Pornography. I wrote and spoke about pornography and eventually authored an academic survey, here it is right here, um, of laws and social attitudes uh, towards sexually explicit materials around the world entitled Social Issues in Global Perspective Pornography, published by Lexington Books. So men are lonely, they're killing themselves at much higher rates than women, and suicide rates are rising. They're killing themselves with drugs and alcohol and turning to authoritarianism. So how do we help men? Well, what I wanna do is show you some data. So, so here are the deaths of despair, and suicide, alcohol-related deaths, drugs, and the deaths of despair are a sort of an aggregate of all of those things. And you see the, the tremendous rise in these deaths of despair wow. um, over the last, since, since around maybe 2000, it looks like here. Um, so these are the suicide rates. Um, and as we see here, white men are at the top. And you really wouldn't think that if white men are powerful and white men are the oppressors and white men, uh, why are they killing themselves at such higher rates? And then you see all men, the rate of suicide is increasing for all men, um, although white men are twice as likely to commit suicide than men of color. And then here we see, interestingly, white women going down and women of color pretty much the same. Let's go to the next one here. So here we have um, non-Hispanic white men, 45 to 50 or 54. This is from the CDC. And we see that drug deaths are going up quite significantly. And all for all males and for everyone, it looks like, but particularly for white men and then for males. And then we also see that white women are also increasing at pretty much the same rate as white males. And this is called some people to speculate that this these deaths of despair are a white issue. And I'm sure that there are issues that um, race may take play a role in it, particularly with some of the negative narratives that are against negative towards men, towards America, towards Christianity, towards Western civilization, um, toward Christianity, maybe having an impact and then maybe the threat of loss, of losing their position uh, is leading to this, um, to these deaths of despair. But on this presentation, I'm really gonna focus on, on men and not necessarily just white men, but men in particular. And then um, here we have some, a graph of suicide rates. And we can see that from here that we haven't had this level of suicide since the era of the Great Depression. And it's this, pretty much the same with men all around. The suicides have um, crept up into post-depression era levels. And here we see white women have increased, um, but female 
suicide has remained largely the same. And a lot of women, maybe more women attempt suicide and men are just simply more successful at it. But on the other hand, we don't know how much of the suicide attempts that women um, are involved in are superficial, are seeking attention. Um, but there you have it. So, so why is this happening? What's causing this, these deaths of superiors, particularly among, among men and among white men in particular? And so what I want to do now is I want to share a video with you. I'm Dr. Orion Taraban, and this is PsychHacks, Better Living Through Psychology. And the topic of today's short talk is women are making society polygamous. Now, this is obviously a very provocative title, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it isn't true. And I hope to back it up with some evidence and arguments in this episode. I will say at the outset that I don't think this movement is intentional. That is, I don't think that women are consciously attempting to accomplish this purpose. This is an epiphenomenon that emerges out of the data en masse, kind of like how a wave emerges out of the movements of individual particles, none of which are particularly wave-like. None of the molecules has any awareness that it is contributing to the wave, but the wave arises out of the molecules nonetheless. This is the mystery surrounding individuals and populations. The two are obviously connected, but it's impossible to see how unless you take a wide enough vantage. Now, to understand why this is happening, why women are making society polygamous, you have to first understand that women today are absolutely crushing it. While there was a gender gap that clearly favored men 50 years ago, we now have a gender gap that clearly favors women. And in many domains, the size of this gender gap is larger than the size of the gender gap that we had a half century ago. Probably for the first time in human history, in most Western societies, childless women under 30 are earning more than childless men under 30. Women are graduating from high school, from college, from, from postgraduate institutions at a significantly higher rate than men. In fact, at a nearly two to one ratio. They are doing very well. So hooray women. That said, all this success does come with an unintended consequence with respect to the dating market. And before the women complain, well, who cares about dating? Let me just say that you should care about dating because unless you want to go back to your father choosing your husband for you, this is pretty much the only pathway to long-term relationships, marriage, and children, which are things I often hear women caring about. So problems with dating will have important downstream consequences. So what is the unintended consequence? In order to understand it, you first have to appreciate that women tend to date hypergamously. For those of you who have never heard this term before, hypergamy is the tendency to date across and up status hierarchies. To put it simply, women want a man who is at least as good as her, if not better. And better, of course, is how women choose to define it, because it's for the cat to decide which milk is good. 
However, with respect to some very obvious metrics, women tend to marry men who are older, taller, stronger, higher status, and higher earning. And here's the rub. If women are outperforming most men, and women continue to date hypergamously, then voila, you have an increasingly shrinking pool of men that the majority of women would even consider as candidates for dating and mating. And that's bad for women because fewer eligible men significantly increases the intra-sex competition for a dwindling pool of potential mates. And it's also bad for most men because most men are just flat out being disqualified from the sexual marketplace. On the other hand, if you are a top 10% man, a top 5% man, wow, is it a time to be alive. And why is that? Because all of these beautiful, high-achieving, intelligent, successful women are competing for you, one of a smaller and smaller subset of men. And the men at the top of these status hierarchies are just having a lot of sex with a lot of different women, and this phenomenon is accelerating at a fantastic rate. In the last 10 years, the number of sexual partners that the average man has had has remained the same. However, over that time, according to the general social survey, the number of men under 30 who had no sex in the past 10 years, in the past year, has tripled from 10% to nearly 30%. This means that one in three, one in three young men have absolutely zero presence in the sexual marketplace. On the other hand, only roughly one in six women in that age group reported the same thing. This creates a correspondence of roughly five women for every four men. And that assumes an even distribution across the remaining participants, which is absolutely not the case. The top performing men are not only having more sex with more women, they're having a lot more sex with a lot more women. So what does this mean? Well, if you put two and two together, it means that society is becoming increasingly polygamous, in which a smaller and smaller subset of men are enjoying a larger share of the sexual access to all women. To put that five to four ratio another way, this means that 20% of women under 30 are currently in a polygamous relationship, whether they're aware of it or not. This situation is not conscious or intentional, but the data back it up. And just to be clear, this is not something men are doing. This is not something that men are forcing on women. Why? Well, in the first place, you have to remember that more men are getting less sex than they had 10 years ago. So if this is a conspiracy on the part of men, they're doing a really bad job of it. And in the second place, women are gatekeepers of sex. These women are not having sex with a smaller subset of men against their will. It's the women who are functionally voting with their feet that it's either these men or no men at all for me, thanks. And what's the likelihood that any one of these top men who now have historically unprecedented sexual access to women, what's the likelihood that one of these top men is going to exclusively commit to any one of these women? I would say that it becomes increasingly smaller.
So this is one of the unintended consequences of women's recent success. And what are the solutions? Well, we know that there are several bad or unlikely ones, including reactionary social movements that relegate women to traditional gender roles, or asking women to date and mate with men who are less desirable to them. I mean, neither of those things is going to happen. So to be honest, the best solution that I can come up with is to really support men. Like to support men with at least as much vigor and enthusiasm as we currently support women. So that the pool of desirable men continues to grow rather than shrink for many years to come. You can be the judge of how likely that will be anytime soon.